Uh, my name is Amy Jones, and I am from the Northeast uh, Parish and the Sharon Amity um, Central Community Group. Um, and I get to read the scripture this morning, which begins with the first chapter of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The word of the Lord. It's times like this when, um, man, that worship was, well, we're always worshiping, but you guys, the, is it the choir we call, do we call it? Pray, okay. Sorry, I'm old school. Um, it's, a mini, it's like a bigger choir and mini choir, but thank you, praise team. You know, they're the prompters, right? They're the prompters. We're the worshipers. God's the audience. And it's times like that when you praise and I hear the word read, I feel like I just need to sit down. We just need to go right to communion. And, but here I am. Um, I'd like you to keep your bulletins out and have the word in front of you today. I'm usually a preacher. I'm an evangelist. And so often I walk around and I'm passionate. And as you know, just from a couple times, sometimes I say things maybe that I shouldn't say. What, you're not supposed to say anything to that, okay? Um, today I'm going to teach. I'm going to preach too, but I'm going to teach. Something happened to me when I found out I was preaching. I was like, Okay, Christmas is a hard, it's a hard sermon to preach during Christmas time, and Easter too, because everybody's heard it, it's become common, you want to say something new, so as you encounter the word, as you read the word, I hope one of the things you do is ask God to speak to you, because this isn't scholastic, this isn't school, this is the living God talking to us, and we need to go into worship, quiet time, our daily life, our momentary moments, and ask God, Lord, speak to you 
because he still does. He speaks in creation. He speaks in the word, the final authority, but he also speaks to us in our heart. He gives us impressions whether we should do this. And so a pastor, what I want to do is not in my own mind come up with a text. I want to think about it. Now, the good thing about Amari is we're, if you have the Holy Spirit, you're on the same wavelength. So he gave you my introduction. It's about being in the story. Man, being, being in a secular post-Christian culture, we're not a Christian nation anymore. Not sure we ever were. The world's always been bad, y'all. It's always been a mess. It's not, you know, I don't know why we're all saying this is like so bad. It is so bad, but it's always been bad. There's only one light. He came into the darkness. So there's one overarching story that we need to pay attention to, and I want to share that with you through the book of John. It's where we normally don't go for the Christmas story, but I want to go there today because he tells it from 30,000 feet in a, in a not a better way, but a different way. We need to put ourselves in the story. Now, if you're living in America, it's very hard to get the Christmas story in your head daily life because there's all these other, quote, fake, Christmas, fake news Christmas stories coming at us. That's all I'm saying, okay? <laughs> fake news Christmas stories. And if you're a kid and your parents are listening to Christmas carols, there's one Christmas carol, uh, it might not be Christmas song, there's a detriment to every kid. That means, kids, if you hear this, turn, make your parents turn this off. Okay? It was like my parents' favorite song. It goes like this. Santa Claus is coming to town. There's never been a worse song. The song came out, it sold 500,000 Things in like a day. Every singer, Mariah Carey, even Justin Bieber, just, I didn't listen to it, but he just sang it. <laughs> you better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. And I always thought Santa Claus was, kids are here, right? So I always thought Santa Claus was good for us. And second clause, he's making a list, checking it twice, going to find out who's naughty or nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. There's another, he knows when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows when you're running around. He knows when you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. That is not the gospel. That's the anti-gospel. That's how we live without the true spirit of Christmas watching each other, keeping track of our sins, being legalistic, older brothers, you know, worrying about if we got the right present or if we didn't get the right present. You know, Karen and I have been married a couple years, yes. I say every day's Christmas, and this sermon's going to help me really think through that a different way. But we have seven kids between us. Isn't that right, seven? Okay. We have nine grandchildren between us. I'm an only child. So Christmas for me, I can get caught up in presents. Now, she doesn't let me buy presents, but I can get, can't you? Can't you get caught up in it all? So let's turn our attention, and I pray that we would get caught up in this story. Now, John starts 
with these words. What are they? In the beginning. Have we ever heard those before? Where? Genesis 1. Now let me read Genesis just for a minute. In the beginning, God. That's all that was in the beginning. He created the heavens and the earth. So God creates. The earth was formless, empty, and darkness was everywhere. Star Wars, right? Whatever that Avengers movie, there's darkness in that too. Matter of fact, in every movie, in every area of life, there's good and bad. There's darkness and light, right? And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the earth. And then later on it says, God does all this stuff. It's very good. Light, planets, life. He creates life. He's light. And then it says, when he gets to man, the apex of his creation, made in the image of God, which shows it's the basis for treating everyone with respect, treating everyone with dignity. Whether you're a prisoner, no matter what you've done, people are made in the image of God. That's why we don't murder. And the opposite of murder is what? Blessing with life, enriching people's life. And God says, let us plural. Now, John 1, John didn't write Genesis. Moses did through the Spirit. But it's the same Spirit that wrote Genesis through Moses writes John 1 through John. And it is a commentary that takes us before Genesis. This John 1, he opens up in a very few verses and takes us not only before Genesis 1, but he takes us in some ways, in a deeper view. And so this is heavy stuff. I'm not going to apologize. You got to pay attention. Okay? You just do. I'm going to make your work today. Please do not go to sleep. I know you're tempted, but just don't. This is so important for us. I want us to see that the Christmas story begins in Genesis 1 and 2. It begins with creation and it ends in Revelation 21. It ends with the new creation. He's making all things new. He's making us new. And the creation we know is groaning and waiting for the revelation of Jesus to come back and the sons of God. Do you know that Advent season, we're going to get the wreath and stuff next year, but Advent season was started in the Middle Ages not to focus on the first coming, but the second. Joy to the world, my favorite, and oh, holy night, and the hallelujah, of course. I love all that. But do you know joy to the world is about the second coming? Not the first. And so the story of Christmas is not just the birth. It's the birth of Jesus. It's the life of Jesus. It's the death of Jesus. It's the resurrection of Jesus, and it is the ascension of Jesus. And even now, where's Jesus? He's sitting on the right hand, ruling the earth, and praying for us right now. He's making intercession. And the Spirit is in us today, corporately. And as we hear this sermon today, one of the beautiful things about preaching is you do it in community. Because, you know, if we just sung those songs individually, that would have been good. But isn't it more powerful when we sing it in community? Hey, God loves us. He's in our midst, in our heart. 
But why does the Bible say wherever two or more are gathered, he's in our midst? God loves community. So, and we'll see that in a minute. I want us to see three things today, and then Christmas Eve we'll look at the fourth. And this was powerful for me because I read this text today, and I saw these four things as the essence of how a non-Christian should celebrate Christmas, how we're supposed to really enter into the Christmas story, but it's also the way a Christian must celebrate Christmas. Let me say it a different way. The four points I'm going to give you today is how every non-Christian, what he has to do in this, in, by God's grace to come to Christ. But it's also the same points that, that describe what every Christian needs to do to grow in Christ. You with me? We don't, well, sometimes we talk to non-Christian. If you're a non-Christian today, I want to talk to you. That means you haven't accepted Jesus. We sometimes talk to you differently than we talk to each other. Wrong. If you're here today, I invite you to Jesus. And you're not a Christian. If you're here today and you're a Christian, guess what? I invite you to Jesus. Same invitation. All right, so four things. Now, make sure I do all four, because sometimes I get carried away and miss one, right? <laughs> Ibrahim, right? All right. The first thing we're supposed to see, the first thing about Christmas is recognizing Jesus. It's all about come and see. That's the, the that's the theme in John. Come and see, go and tell. And the spirit of Christmas, getting into the story of Christmas, is not seeing Jesus through the lens of TV or Santa Claus or the Christmas tree or getting lost in that. It's seeing Jesus as the great Lord God who's come to earth, and he's the gigantic figure. He's the story in all stories. He's the truth in all truth. He's the reality in all realities. He is the breath that as Kelly says so often, we should be thankful today because we got up and God gave us the very breath that we breathe. That's Jesus. He's a towering, gigantic figure. And the first thing all about the Christmas story, the first thing that it means as, as to come to Christ is to recognize Jesus. And it's also the thing that we need to do on a daily basis. See Jesus every day, every minute. As we look to people, we see Jesus in them. As we look to the world, even in our sufferings, we see God, Jesus in the middle of that, not leaving us as orphans. So the second thing I want us to see is it's not enough to see Jesus. We must receive him. Receive him. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. That's the whole point of Jesus' coming is so that we would see him, God in the flesh. Let earth, all of earth, receive her king. Her king. The third thing we do is as if we receive Jesus, which means that we're born again, the third thing that happens is we need to relate to God in a new way. If you don't know Jesus Christ, the reason this is good news is because the gospel the, the essence of the gospel is that people that were orphans now become sons and daughters of the living God. That's the essence of the gospel. Everything before that, God calling us, God justifying us, God regenerating us, is, finds its climax in being his sons and, and daughters. And you and I often commit practical atheism, just like unbelievers. We forget who we are. Right? Right. And then the fourth thing we'll see Christmas Eve is 
as we live as sons, as we see Jesus, as we recognize him and receive him, as we relate to him in a new way, we reflect him. We become like him to a watching and waiting world. So let's look at John 1. Look at your, we're going to go through this verse by verse. Now, when I preached on John in my prior church, I took eight sermons to deal with like eight, eight verses. I am not going to preach for eight hours today, okay? So this is Cliff Notes. Pay attention. In the, in the beginning was the word. Greek word is logos. When John wrote, he was writing to not just a Jewish culture, but he was writing to a Gentile culture. And the Bible is written, the New Testament, in Aramaic, that's what Jesus spoke, and Greek. This is Greek. Now, the Jews were all, I mean, the Greeks were all about logos. What it meant is truth and reality. They were asking questions like, what is the ultimate logos? What is the ultimate meaning in life? What is the unmoved mover? Who is the one that created things? How did we get here? Why are we here? What is our goal in life? All those gigantic questions, the Greeks, because they were wealthy, sat around and asked those questions all day long. It's true, right? But the difference between the word is understood by Greeks and even secularists, and the, John's description of the word is for us, the logos is personal. He's a person. And so before all things, in eternity, there was a person, and he was the ultimate truth, the ultimate reality. And you cannot find truth, you cannot find reality, except in the Christmas story, except in Jesus Christ. Secondly, so this says the word in the beginning was the word. In the beginning. Who else was in the beginning? But Jesus, God the Father, God the Son, right? Three persons, Trinity's confusing, three persons, the same nature. And so the second verse in John tells us that the word was not alone. What's the second verse? What, what does the next part say? The word was, that means there's at least two. We know from Genesis, and that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the earth. The Holy Spirit is talked about in the first three verses of Genesis. It's not just an, the Holy Spirit's not just a New Testament phenomenon. So when you get to New Testament, they don't have to explain who the Holy Spirit was. He was with God. You know, I don't go back to my Greek a lot, but I went back this week. You know what the word with God means? Toward God. You see, this is teaching not only that there's, two God, there's God the Father, God the Son, two different persons. It's also talking about how they related to one another. It literally says the word was toward God. He was face to face. They leaned in together. They had community. And what we're experiencing today was, is rooted in eternity. God is a communal God. He exists in community. He did not need us. One of the reasons he created us is he wanted more community. 
And for us, the mission of this church, how we live it, we are diverse. We define ourselves in some different ways. I said Northeast, so I didn't know it was the Northeast Parish. I thought you were talking about Philly, okay? <laughs> we are ultimately brought into community, and there's only one thing that defines us ultimately, and that is our relationship to Jesus Christ. And when we relate to him, as we'll see in a minute, we also are in community to each other. So that, that's why we are one. So he was... In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and now he says an amazing statement, the word was God. Tremendous statement. That is why the Jews hated Jesus and wanted to kill him, because he claimed over and over again to be God. He didn't discover he was God halfway through his ministry. <laughs> He was eternally God. And when he became man, he did not give up his godness. And in heaven right now, he has not given up his manness. We will always see his nails. That's the gospel. God and man, fully God, fully man, in the same, in the same person. Took the church 300 years to sort of get that right. The word was God. Now, this has tremendous implications on how we read the Old Testament. I think I'm preaching. Good. This has tremendous implications on how we read the Old Testament. I asked someone this week, just one person, not going to say who it is. When God speaks in the Old Testament, which person of the Trinity is speaking? Now, as you've thought of that in the past, what do we usually think? No, it's God the Son. God is eternally revealing himself, not just in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament through the Son in the Son. So I know that some of the elders are looking at me like, okay. So listen, here's my logic. Since Jesus is the eternal word of God, since Jesus says, I and the Father are. Since Jesus says, if you see me, you see. God is always, God the Father, God the Spirit is always Jesus-like. That's why Jesus says that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ, right? And God, both. They're the same in essence. They've been with each other. And so let me, but let me give you some radical verses that we typically skip over. Je Jesus says in John 8, the Pharisees say to him, are you greater than our father Abraham? Well, if you were Jesus, how would you answer that question? <laughs> huh? He says, Abraham longed to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Now, I think that was the sacrifice, right? Instead of sacrifice, God was saying to Abraham, if you want to be my child, you got, somebody's got to die. That's why it wasn't just a test. It was an illustration. 
You got to kill your son. A son's got to die, right? And so in that story, what did God do in place of Isaac dying? What did he provide? Right? In a bush. When John the Baptist comes to the people of God and just comes to the world, he says, behold the... So in John 8, Jesus says, are you greater than our father Abraham? The Pharisees ask him. He says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Before Abraham was, ergo me, I am. Wow. Okay? Second illustration. Moses goes to this burning bush, and it's, it's the fire of God. It's the light of God. You know, that was the only bush that had fire, but it wasn't consumed. The fire of God, when it comes into our heart, it purifies us. It doesn't destroy us. And so, you know, Abraham, Moses is there, and he says a great question. Hey, who are you? Who, like, you want me to do all this stuff with them? Who do I tell them you are? And what does he say? I am. Who was that? Jesus. Now, let's skip Moses. Let's go to David. Psalm 110. David says, the Lord, the Lord, Father, says to my Lord, God the Father, God the Son, sit at my feet. And then finally, let's look at Isaiah. Great, great, great. I preached at Covenant Seminary once. I think it was the convict. It was at the end. I think they call that like the convocation. Is that what? Giorgio actually was there back then. He didn't remember anything, but um, I preached on Isaiah 6. It's such a great passage. Here's Isaiah, and he has this vision of God. His glory is all over, and the cherubim and the seraphim, what are they doing? They're covering their eyes. They're flying around because they can't see God. They can't see Jesus. And yet, Isaiah gets to. And Isaiah's greatest grip was preaching and even his preaching need to be sanctified with coals. So look at what Isaiah, look at what John 12 says. It's an amazing, amazing verse. Isaiah 6 says, In the year of King Isaiah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. Who was it that he saw? Haven't we all thought that that was God the Father? I mean, maybe some of you scholars or now, or some of you guys went to seminary, probably got that right. I've, I always thought until I studied John. And so this is what Jesus says in John 12. These things Isaiah said, because he saw my glory and he spoke of me. So, if you want to get to know Jesus on the road to Emmaus, when God opened their eyes, because God's got to open our eyes if we're going to recognize it. This isn't just study time. This is grace. The first grace that God gives us is the grace of the Holy Spirit. As Calvin says, the Holy Spirit is the glasses. He opens our eyes so we can see Jesus, right? That's why when we pray for our loved ones that don't know Jesus, we pray, God, open their eyes. Open their eyes. And we shouldn't be judging them because they can't see. They're not like you and me. When we sin, we sin against the light. So Paul says, 
I'm the chief of sinners because he'd been to heaven. And so everything he did after that was, man, I saw heaven. I'm still sinning. Paul sinned, right? He had a big argument with Peter, could handle it differently. Threw Mark under the bus. But anyway, <laughs> we'll. So, road to Emmaus, what does Jesus do? He calls him foolish, slow of heart, but then he begins to teach about him all through the Old Testament. So, here's the point. We are to recognize Jesus. The Bible in the Old Testament is all about Jesus, but, 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 Christmas is greater because the God that you read about and saw now becomes flesh. Wow. Guys, if the gospel wasn't true, no man could have invented it. There's no story like this. C.S. Lewis, you know what led him to Christ other than Tolkien? What led him to Christ is he loved fairy tales and he read the Bible and it felt like a fairy tale, but it wasn't. It reads, there's nothing like the scripture. 66 books saying the same thing, talking about Jesus so that we might recognize him. So, this gigantic truth is the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. And Jesus, there's no clock here, so excuse me. He, um, long ago, this is what Hebrews said, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. In these last days, he has spoken to us in and by his son. He's the final word. And every time we study the Bible, we need to say, Lord, open our eyes, help me see Jesus, because when I see Jesus, it's only because the Holy Spirit is in me, so God's working in that process, and when I see Jesus, I get to see the Father. All the Trinity is involved in Bible study, and so when we open this book, you know what a great danger of pastors is? For years, I told Kelly this, how many years ago, 12 or 14, the great problem at Tom Henry and you guys that were back at Grace Covenant in the day is that I read the Bible to teach and to preach. I didn't really know Jesus. I mean, I knew him, but I didn't. I caught God on the run. I had a prayerless life. The church should have fired me. I said that like the first sermon during my interim. They should have fired me. Somebody came up after, well, we would have, but we were gracious. I'm like, okay, we'll say that again. All right, recognize Jesus. It is a gift of God, but I got to tell you, all of our lives are to be focused on seeing Jesus. And in the end of the day, we will be doing one thing in heaven. We will be, it's called the beatific vision. We will see God. And the thing that will change us into glorified beings is that when he appears, we will become like him. And the only way to become like Jesus is to recognize him. That's the starting point. Then, it's not enough to see Jesus because as you know, many, many, many people see it, know it, and they don't receive him. And for us on a daily basis, we might see Jesus, we might read the Bible, but it's, he stays far from us. We're not entering into him. We're not asking him to come into my, our lives. So Jesus, one of the saddest, saddest, saddest verses in the Christmas story is this. Even though he created all things, 
even though that light flowed from him, right? In him was light, and the life was the light of man. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. Jesus came in eternity past, and he exploded on the scene, and with one word, he created all things. Unbelievable power. And the one thing that the scientists can't tell us is how life came into being. They can say all they want that, you know, Big Bang, eternal matter, but something has, this could be, this chair, whatever this is, pulpit, do you call this a pulpit here? Okay, just checking. All right, this thing could be here for a million, 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 trillion years. Do you think life would come out of it? That's what evolution teaches. It's ridiculous. I get that squirrels change into flying squirrels, but you can't get a squirrel from this. Right? So Jesus creates. He is the light of the world, which means he purifies. When Jesus says he's the light, he's talking about the light, the goodness, the glory, the righteousness, the purity of God. And the good news, no matter how, what, no matter if you have the dark night of the soul, no matter if you think that Jesus has gone behind the clouds, no matter what you think of our nation's politics, and every one of us should be grieved by what's going on, no matter what our political affiliation. How was that? Was that good? Okay. I just check it. It's not what I want to say. Okay. Every one of us, we are in a dark world. Darkness reigns, but we reign in life through Jesus. And he gives us his light, and he gives us his light, not just externally, we receive the light, and it becomes in us. So this little light of mine, we are the light of the world, right? We don't hide it. We reflect it. See that Christmas Eve. So what does it mean to receive? Here's what the definition says. To take into one's hand or possession. To have, to accept delivery. To take or hold. To experience, to undergo, to meet with. Now, John wrote not just the Gospel of John. He wrote three letters. And John the first letter is a commentary on how to receive. And one of the great tragedies in the Christmas story is first that Jesus, although he created all things, the world didn't see it. They didn't recognize him. Tragic. But there's a more tragic statement. He came to his own, and they didn't receive him. But you know what's even more tragic than that? Sometimes he comes to Tom Henry, and I don't receive him either. I'm not preaching to people out there, y'all. We're preaching to each other, to you and to me. And this Christmas season and every day of our lives as disciples, we need to ask God, show us your glory. One thing I ask, this is what I seek, that I may gaze at the beauty of God, right, in his temple, one day in his courts is worth a thousand watching a Clemson game. Sorry, messing. <laughs> Could have said Philadelphia Eagles. I'm not touching that. It's on 415. Okay. Um, so here's what 1 John 1 says. This is what it means to receive Jesus. That which was from the beginning, that which we've heard, that which we've seen with our eyes, that which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands. That's what Christmas means. Jesus came as a human, not like a human, as a human. You could touch him, you could smell him, you could not taste him, but you could be part of him. 
You could listen to them, you could see them, and you still can. Even though our eyes do not see them right now, unless there is a dream or vision that happens. 70% of the Muslims come to Christ through a dream or vision. It's true. The Presbyterian missionaries never say that because they think they're going to be in trouble. But it's true. But normally, we don't have a vision where we literally see Jesus. But we see him with the eye of our heart. Right? Open the eyes of my heart. I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened so that you would know. So here's what it says. That which we've seen, that we've touched with our hands concerning the word of life, this life was made manifest. He was revealed. We've seen it and we testified. If you receive Jesus, the way you know that is you're going to talk about him. You don't have to go to a class on witnessing. You're just going to witness. Right? Like when I talk about the eagles, I don't have to study the eagles. I just do. When I talk about Karen's cooking, love you, babe. I just, just eat. If I eat it, I talk about it. Sometimes I say, most of the time, almost all the time, just so I'm not in trouble, it's great. Sometimes I say to her, you know, you could step it up a little, but it's very rare. And when I do that, I need marital counseling, okay? <laughs> Fortunately, we have a counselor in the house, okay? Okay, making y'all look good. So, one more thing about receiving Jesus. Kids, who are, like who in here is under 12? Quick color and just raise your hand. Come on. Do you guys know what bread is? Everybody know what bread is? Now, let's just say normally you might not like bread, but let's just say it's cinnamon bread or sugar on it or jelly or peanut butter, whatever. Jesus comes into the world and he says seven I am statements. And the first thing he says is, I am the bread of life. The reason he feeds the 5,000 with bread and fish is because he wants them to realize that he is the bread of life. That's why Israel, when they walked around for 40 years, he gave them. Jesus wants to be the bread that you eat. I have a great Chinese pastor and I asked him his testimony. And his testimony, the miracle happened. He had, he was, he had stomach cancer. He was seven. They lived in the, the middle of China, no hospitals. And his parents taught him one thing as a child. Go to God first. You want to teach your kids one thing? Go to God first, and you do it. I got to confess. I get sick, you know what I do? Go to a doctor first. Don't ever pray. That's what it means to receive Jesus. He wants to be the bread that you eat, the water that you drink, the light that you walk by, the door that you, you know, the door that you walk in on Christmas morning and get all the presents. Or the, my parents used to lock it. The three gifts I got, I usually was cold because I was bad. But anyway, you know, they always threaten that. If you're not good, we're going to put coal in your stockings, whatever. Um, but I knew there was a door, and I always tried to break in that door. Sometimes I did, and they kept my presence, so whatever. So here's the major point. We not only need to recognize him 
and receive him. But when we do, he gives us the right to become children. The great doctrine in the scripture is adoption. And adoption happens not by blood, not physically, not by the desire of the flesh, like, right, when, well, that's enough, and not by the will of man. It's not a natural birth. He says it to Nicodemus. You're a teacher of Israel, and you don't get that the essence of the gospel, the essence of the Old Testament, is that we who were orphans now become sons. Let me read some scripture for you. Y'all, you got to say amen to that. I must not be preaching right. Is it not a privilege for us to move from orphans, the ones that were cast out, the ones that were in darkness and blindness, imprisoned to flesh? Is it not unbelievable that he takes us from that and makes us his children? So we cry out, Abba, the most intimate term. And if you had a bad father, Lord, I'm so glad I didn't, then you need to reframe your father or what a father is through the scripture and be freed from the oppression that that pain gives. All right, so here's what he says. John, look down there with me because I don't want you to forget it. John 1, 12, 13. As many as received him, how do you know if you receive Jesus? He gave them the right to become children of God, even those, or especially those, who believe in his name. Believing in Jesus' name, which is the same as receiving him, gives us the right to become children of God. And what does belief mean? It's, as Tezu said, it's the gaze of the soul on a saving Christ. It is eating him as bread, following him as light, touching him, tasting him. Now, I won't say that. It's a bad illustration. All right, I'll say it. I was a hyperactive kid. Shocker, right? Really shocker. And so Christmas wasn't all that good for me because I was an only child. So when I'm home, you know, if you're an only child and you get in trouble, you can't blame it on anybody else. The dog, you, my dogs lived outside, so I was just, I was done. And then when I got to be with my cousins, because I wasn't usually around kids, I would always blame them for stuff and act out in a worse way, and that's why they don't speak to me to this day. My grandmother always said, easy does it. God bless her. Never worked, right? And my parents, especially my Aunt Daisy, literally, when I was bad, she threatened to put me down in the coal cellar. They had one where it was just dark. That was my Christmas. It stunk. We never went to church. We listened to that, you know, better not shout song. It was just, it was a disaster. Many of us live in that life. We live in darkness. We're in the coal cellar. We try so hard to get things and possess things. 
we're always reaching, never satisfied, always drinking, always thirsty, always eating, never full. But, but God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive when we were dead in sins. That's why you can pray for the worst person in the world that God would enlighten them. There's no one too far away that God can't save them. So this Christmas, when you see Aunt Daisy, she's long gone, 50-50 whether she's in heaven, really, I'm sorry. But if I'd have been a Christian back then, I'd have viewed her in a, as a different light. Adoption. Let me read some passages. First of all, when did God adopt us? In love, he predestined us to adoption. He predetermined out of his love that we would be adopted as sons. That's why we don't have to say sons and daughters. We're all sons because we're related to the son. It's in Jesus we become sons of God. Okay? That's what he does. We share in his humanity so that we will relate to God just as he does. So God loves us just as much as he loves Jesus. The same rights that Jesus has, we have. God predestined us to adoption through Jesus Christ to himself, intimate, according to the kind intention of his will to the praise and the glory of his grace. If there's anything that would make you praise God, it's that you are secure in him and he loves you as much as he loves Jesus. Mm. I can't even, Lord, help us get it. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called, what? Children of God. But guess what? The world does not know who we are. Right? We shouldn't be surprised. Persecution's good, as my Chinese friend says, because it shows you that you're a son of God and you've not been corrupted to live like all the other orphans in the world. Why does God adopt us? Because he loves us according to the kind intention of the will. And what does it mean? Here's what Galatians says. Before the coming of Jesus, we were held prisoner under the law, locked up in a dark place until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law, the law, all the rules, all the struggles, all the things we've tried to do to get out of our own prisons or to help somebody out of theirs, all those things went away. And now we live not according to the law, not according to should and ought. We live according to the spirit. Now that the faith has come, we're no longer under the law, we, by, in Christ Jesus, are all children of God. We have the same rights and privileges. What does that mean? You know what it means? Now, do you know that we're a diverse church? That's why I'm here. Look around. Just take a minute. Look around. You can do that. You can look around church. I always do. You know what the Bible says? You know what the basis of racial Unity is that we're sons. You know what our ultimate identity is? Not that we're from the Northeast. 
Not that we have an ethnic background. Not that we have different skin tones. Not that we're poor or rich. There is only one thing that defines us, and that we're, that's we're God's children. And that's why, as Paul says this, there is no difference between male and female, Jew and Gentile. A lot of differences there, right? Slave or free, we're all one in Christ because we're his children. Here's what J.A. Packer says. The entire Christian life should be understood in terms of adoption. Sonship must be the controlling thought, the normative character. If you like, at every single point in our life, we must never forget that we're his children and that we have as his children all the rights and the privileges of God. We are going to be as rich as Jesus in heaven. And even now, we have the greatest gift, the Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit that we now follow. And he, what the law could not do, weak as it was, God did, not only condemning it, but he gave us a new operating power. And so now, you and I, on a daily basis, when we encounter the word, we ask God to fill us, stuff us with God. He's already there, stuff us. We've quenched you. We've resisted you. We've put you, we've hit you. Break those, forgive us, God. Fill us with love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering, kindness, gentleness. I, I look at Karen about long-suffering because living with me, can you imagine? Pray for her, okay? If you want to understand, Packer says, how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father and Jesus as his brother. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life. It means that he does not understand Christianity at all. Anybody convicted? But I got to tell you, all this, if I end it here, man, all this can be the law. Recognize Jesus. Receive Jesus. Relate to Jesus. Guess what? You know what the good news of the gospel is? He opens our eyes. It's not about us seeing Jesus. It is. I don't want to discount what I just said. It's the true great reality of Christmas is that he sees us. He knows us by name. We are his. He knows the remaining hairs on my head. And he loves us. You know what the great thing about marriage is? It's when your wife gets you and loves you. That's what we pray in our marriages, right? We get each other. We know each other. All the faults, they increase every day because we are getting worse. Our flesh is getting worse. But God has used a different operating principle, the spirit as sons. So how about receiving? Yeah, it's one thing for us to receive God, but guess what? He receives us. Yeah. And it's one thing for us to relate to God as his child, but we don't want God to forget that he's our father. That's the gospel. I end with this. I love this story, prodigal son. It's really not called the prodigal son. It's, as Tim Keller says, it's really directed to the Pharisees. You know the story, right? 
but let me paraphrase it. So, there were these two boys. We don't know their names because they represent all of us. And each one of, us, each one of them represents a part of us. And so, the guy that was obstreperous, you know, just a bad kid, he goes to his father and says, I wish you were dead. So give me the money. Really, that's what he does. Right? What, what does the father do? I was teaching this. I, I teach at a race shop on Mondays, and most of the guys don't know Jesus. And one of my, they're, they're learning. And a lot of them are coming to Christ. It's, it's absolutely wonderful. Derek, Derek knows. And one of the guys that's a leader in the organization, and he's just so honest, he's hearing me tell this story, and he says, the father was a, um, it begins with an I, not a very good spell, it ends with a T, so I'm not going to say it. Just dumb, okay? It, that's it, but isn't it amazing? And I went, oh, you got to be kidding me. And he was right. What kind of father gives his son, especially one that's going to waste it, half his inheritance? Jesus does. And so he goes out, prodigal, and he spends it in riotous living with wine, women, and the three W's I said once, wine, women, and song. I don't know. It's really two W's, but that's what he did. And, and he was a great guy. He had an entourage, happy. Everybody liked him. And his worldview is life is pleasure. That's my life. That's my identity. And it sound familiar? We still live under that. Me and you live under that idol. If I can just get the right circumstances. And so the good news is he ran out of money. All his friends, <laughs> they left him. And he gets a job as a Jewish kid feeding pigs. And what's worse, he's lusting after their food. It is, that is a bad day. That is a no good, very bad day. Can't remember that book, but you know. What's the guy's name? Thank you. That's what his name was, Alexander. And he then says, aha, come to my senses. Um, you know, my older brother's life's looking good. But I know I've, I can't earn that again. So I'll just go home because the slaves are living a whole lot better than I am. So he comes up with a speech. It's not real. Oh, Father, I've sinned against heaven and earth. It's one of those speeches, you know, you come up with to get out of trouble. I've sinned against heaven and earth, and I'm no longer worthy to become your son. And so when he comes home, the father sees him, and while he's a long way off, what does the father do? He runs to him. And the son starts with a speech, and the father interrupts him. Because he says, you're not going to dictate this relationship. It's me. I'm your father. And what does he do? He welcomes him back, puts the robe on, Dignity, gives him the ring, you're a son. And the older brother, and he throws him a party. Wow. Huh. Don't you love the fact that God throws us a party when we're in sin? Can I say that? That's the gospel, y'all. That's the gospel. If we think we deserve God's blessings we, and we earn them, we're forgetting the gospel. Being a son means sometimes you give your kids Christmas presents even when they're bad. How about the older brother? His view is life is performance. And so he says, wait a minute, this is ridiculous. Leaves the party, won't go to the dance. Sad. If you're a legalist, 
You know what happens in Galatians? Is he says to the Galatians, what happened to all your joy? What happens to it? When, if you're in a place where you've lost your joy, you have moved into legalism. You're thinking, if she could do this, if he could do this, if only my husband would do this, if they, then I'd be happy. If only my boss would give me this. That's the older brother. But you know what the father does with the older brother? He goes out and he says, son, all I have is yours. Do you know when the fa- what the father did when the younger brother asked him for money? He divided it equally. So today, in closing, I invite you to recognize Jesus. I invite you to receive him. And I invite you to relate to him. But as you leave this place and you pray for that and commit to that, I want you to remember that Jesus recognizes you. He receives you. And he relates to you as your brother. And God is our father. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, um, we're speechless. It really happens with me. We just don't know what to say. Help us see you in these elements, these means of grace, as we see the bread, as we see the wine. We see you. And as we see it for what it is, grace, you're, in order to do this, in order to receive us, in order to have the sons, you had to bleed, Lord Jesus. Help us receive this to the nourishment of our souls. Help us relate to you as a new community in this place that have been free from our false identities to live as children of God. And you also tell us when we do this, we reflect you. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen.